Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 74, Grail Quest. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Mosaic. I'm Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and look forward to the future while learning from the past. Looking at the legend that shaped history and these films, decoding the first superhero through the lens of the first Grail Knight, this show dives deep into DC Films for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that give us so much. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC Films and who love to chew their food. Well met, my friends. This episode, we conclude Percival's story and its parallels with our films. So last time, Percival had set out to see his mother, but instead he encounters the enigmatic, wounded Fisher King. Percival accepts the Fisher King's invitation to his mystical castle, where a procession of magical artifacts occurs. These include the Holy Grail and the Bleeding Lance. Unbeknownst to Percival, the king, his castle and kingdom, are under enchantment. The Fisher King bears a supernatural wound, which has turned the whole kingdom into a spreading wasteland. Only when one with a noble heart spontaneously asks, Whom does the Grail serve, and why does the lance bleed, can the king and the land be healed? And so the castle eagerly awaits his questions, but the inquisitive Percival does not ask. He had been instructed that a knight does not ask questions. And so he holds his tongue despite his curiosity, and when Percival awakes the next morning, the castle is empty. And when he crosses the drawbridge, the magical castle vanishes and is nowhere to be found. Shortly after this, Percival is confronted by a parade of weeping damsels, representing his earlier naive adventures, where he had thought himself the hero, but where each of these damsels suffered collateral damage from his actions. One weeping damsel explains the enchantment to Percival, that his forever failure can never be corrected, because no one can ever return to the Grail Castle. And to make matters worse, she informs him that his mother had died the day he had left home. Percival bears the guilt of this, but vows not to rest until he has found the grail to heal the Fisher King and restore the wasteland. But even as he continues to do good as a knight, again and again he meets weeping damsels, and previous successes are revealed to have hidden costs and casualties. Percival's quest has kept him separated from his true love, Blanche Fleur, and the separation puts him into a trance where he ends up defeating the Knights of the Round Table one by one, until Sir Gawain breaks the trance and invites Percival to join the round table. Before this encounter, Percival had been showing every knight he vanquished mercy, then sending them into the service of King Arthur. So having finally met their greatest recruiter in the guise of a knight, remember that he had been there before as a fool, all of Camelot celebrates and rejoices. That is, until the Grail Messenger, also known as the Hideous Damsel, arrives to humiliate Percival at the peak of his fame and adulation by the greatest royal court of all time, a supernaturally ugly being who seems to speak for the Grail Castle, publicly pronounces all of Percival's sins, failings, and faults, then charges Arthur with the recovery of the Grail and the Bleeding Lance. Camelot, 
agrees to take up the task, and that's where we left off last episode. Here, Joseph Campbell puts particular emphasis on the next part. And then there occurs in the old French text in the quest, it's one that seems to me to epitomize the whole sense of the grail symbology. The text says they agreed all would go on this quest, but they thought it would be a disgrace to go forth in a group. They thought it would be a disgrace to go forth in a group. Each entered the forest, the forest of the adventure, at a point that he himself had chosen, where it was darkest and there was no path. As raised last episode, Campbell is preoccupied with concepts of counterculture and anti-authoritarianism, so naturally his focus is on the individual journey, the novelty of that journey, and the disgrace of collectivism. Now we are missing out on the adventure! Or maybe it's just a different adventure. Well, it's not the right one. We're supposed to be following in the footsteps of greatness, following the map. Adventure isn't about following the same old path. It's about discovering new things and going off the map. <laughs> Campbell agrees. The point is, if you follow a trail or path, you're following someone else's adventure, not your own. Every single human being is unique and must find his adventure, entering the forest where there is no way or path. And in fact, he practically infuses this moment with the birth of modern Western civilization. Well, it's my view that the, the period from 1150 to 1250, this is the period, the period of the Arthurian romances. It's a period of the troubadour, and to me, is the seed period of our post-Gothic world. Comparable, I think, properly, to the period of the Homeric epics for the classical world. And the echoes of the Arthurian come down to us through many, many transformations. But it was at that time that the German formulation of Occidental European spiritual formations and possibilities were, were stated. The Arthurian romances are the counterparts of the Homeric epics for later Europe. And what is characteristic about them is the faith and trust in the power of the individual to find his own path. Each entered the forest at the point where he had chosen and where it was darkest and there was no way or path. That's unique to Europe. When you follow a way or path it's someone else's path but the european is aware of the individual potentialities unique to each individual and his life is something he has to find himself the instruction can come in the way of general guidance but then it has to be interpreted in terms of, of the individual's own destiny feeling but it's typical of europe the whole exploration of the planet which they undertook no other people had done that with that zeal and enormous result it's Europe that's transformed this into one, one planet. He credits this line with the individualism that caused Europeans to explore and conquer the entire world. Whether this is cultural or environmental is a discussion for a different show entirely. <laughs> well, one can certainly see his point, but one could also place the emphasis elsewhere. After all, the decision to quest for the Grail was collective. They all agreed. Their actions were collective. They all quested. And the goal was collective. The Grail. And it's effectuated by many collective societal structures, systems, and hierarchies. The feudal system, case system, squires, knights, and kings, the royal court, King Arthur, and the church. Put another way, even if the path is novel and the journey alone, there was plenty of collective setup for a collectively agreed-upon goal. While there's individuality in the adventure, this isn't a call for anarchy or the fall of Camelot. Rather, it's to harness the good of all through the lens of one. 
To quote the meme, we live in a society. Yes, Zach may be an Artur, but make no mistake, he's made his living working in Warner's studio system and with Warner's intellectual property. But don't take my word for it. In a 2013 interview with the Japan Times, Zach said, quote, American society encourages us so much to be individuals and tells us how special we are. When I was a kid, the way my mother talked, I thought we were all fated to be movie stars. Ours is a culture of celebrity. Everyone is handed a dream but no one tells you there's got to be hard work somewhere underneath that dream. It's a dangerous thing to think you're so special and not have anything to back it up. End quote. Let's not go so crazy on the individuality front and forget our collective agreements, goals, etc. Moreover, while there's validity in the individual journey, don't forget that the grail was the goal, and only Percival achieved that goal. And when he does, arguably it is through and with community. So if the grail symbolizes attainment of the highest ideal, the myth presents the possibility that nearly all of those individual knights will fail, fall, and never return to Camelot. That no one reaches the grail on individuality alone, but by the path of Percival, maybe. <laughs> the emphasis on individuality does serve to underscore where the responsibility for the adventure lies. The grail isn't achieved by convincing others to go, or by demanding the world deliver it to you. Zack's remedy to the culture of celebrity is not that society hands you your dream already fulfilled. No, the legend highlights how the individual is responsible to quest after the grail, to go after it, to work hard, to back up their dreams and ambitions. Not because goals can't be or benefit from the collective, but because enlightenment occurs on an individual level. What that was all about the revolution will not be televised that was about the fact that the first change that takes place is in your mind you have to change your mind before you change the way you live and the way you move it's here that I think the Jungians and psychologists have highlighted the deeper insight in their emphasis on, quote, where it was darkest. Think about that. The grail is a beacon of light, the epitome, and the ideal. Why wouldn't the knights go searching for it atop a shining hill? It's because even a thousand years ago, people knew that which you need the most will be found where you least want to look. This is the shadow principle we discussed last episode. Our stories know that the ideal cannot be achieved with solely sunshine and smiles. No, it takes courage to confront the darkness and transmute it into good. Superman's not good because he's harmless, penned in by powerlessness, laws, morals, and fear. Superman is good because he knows how powerful he is and has tamed all of that ability for good. I think that Clark does an amazing job just kind of expressing that excitement, trepidation. And then also, I think there's this level of responsibility he feels in the realization of this power. And I think that that is also evident the way he renders the scene. And I think it's really a beautiful sentiment that he would be able to be this amazing. He knows the responsibility that this force for good, but it's not without responsibility. Yeah, and it's about ego building. 
building. I don't mean egotism. I mean building your sense of your conscious identity. You know, we have to leave our parents. We have to step into the world. We have to take on the tasks. And the person who doesn't do that, who is avoiding that, is going to pay the piper down the line sooner or later. But we have to step into the world. And it has been suggested by others that it's a kind of ego world axis. What is the world asking of me? And can I mobilize my resources, my sense of discipline or my willingness to pay my dues legitimately in order to meet those tasks? And that's part of growing up. A simple illustration comes from contrasting two cinematic encounters between Clark and a truck driving bully. Initially, in both cases, Clark doesn't fight back. In Superman 2, he's simply a victim, running from his power. Being powerless and afraid is not a credit to his character. But in Man of Steel, Clark is completely capable of putting Ludlow in his place, but he doesn't. That's moral courage and strength of will. At least until he gets outside, Clark, like all of us, still has more shadow work to do. <laughs> to paraphrase Leo Bascalia, only the strong can be gentle, only the weak are cruel. Perhaps another more controversial illustration is in the death of Jonathan Kent. Again, in Superman 78, Clark is simply a victim of Pa's death. It's nothing but a circumstance, something that happens to Clark, which he says he's powerless to prevent. But in Man of Steel, Clark painfully owns what he says was his decision. I let my father die because I trusted him. Note that this does not change the outcome. But one progresses Clark along an arc of self-actualization, while the other leaves him the victim of what may be. It is inevitable that we will face tragedy, evil, or even a dyad of both. But even a thousand years ago, we knew that you can't stand up to that with just gestures of joy and platitudes. Nor is just taking it, curling up into a ball and wallowing in our hurt, the right outcome. No, the Arthurian legend taps into the wisdom that when we've voluntarily entered the forest of adventure at the point darkest to us and taken on and overcome its challenges, it prepares us for tragedy and evil, to know when, how, and whether to use our power and restraint, to have the strength of will and moral courage to act correctly to defeat evil or stem the tide of tragedy, and to endure when we don't know, when we're uncertain and unsure, when we're weak and when we fail to persist because we know we are by no means perfect, to be an active participant in our lives and not just a passive passenger. The goal isn't to geld your power, to castrate oneself into the Fisher King, but harness your vigor for life, to be a questing knight seeking the grail and not an impotent king groaning on his litter. Of course, that all comes through the forest adventure. And returning to Percival, they haven't even set off yet. While all the other knights are excited to go on the quest, remember that this quest comes by way of Percival's utter humiliation in front of all of King Arthur's court. And this is after years of fruitless searching for the Grail Castle and a separation from Blanche. As Gawain sets off, he bids Percival adieu by saying, Go with God or God. Godspeed, and Percival takes it poorly. And Percival just gets up, and when Gawain is leaving, Gawain says, I commit you to God, and Percival says, I hate God. 
I have nothing to do with God. I thought I was serving God. I thought I was doing as I have been told was the sacred thing to do. And look what he's done to me. I'm through with God. And then he, he leaves and goes off on this quest. He resolves he will depart to achieve the castle of the Grail again and heal the king. Gawain is going to depart. And Gawain comes to Parsifal. And they are going to bid each other goodbye as they ride forth on adventure. And Gawain says, I commit you to God. And Parsifal says, I despise and hate God. He says, I have served God, and he has not been loyal. In other words, he is applying human values, the courtly values, the highest values of his time to God. And this is improper. But he now rides forth, having renounced the God of his mother, having renounced the God of his culture, in express hatred of that God on adventure. And he's going to be five years in the desert of his soul. The world's become a desert through him and himself become a desert through him in quest. This is the beginning of the Grail quest. Everything up to this point has taken place in the way of nature, spontaneously. His character has carried him through, but his desire to fill the world's image to achieve fame and maintain fame in the world has cut him down at the high point and he's lost both the spiritual and the earthly careers. And it's in this case that he sets forth on his great adventure while Gawain rides forth on his. Remember that even in the very beginning, his mother instructed him to follow God. And this was reinforced by the old knight, who made it the motivation behind everything else a knight would do. And yet this pillar of all his actions has ended in humiliation and shame. Do I even need to point out the parallel with our Superman in BVS? Just as this is a crisis of faith for Percival, the bombing of Capitol Hill is a crisis of faith for Clark. Just as Percival cites his dutiful service and obedience as leading to this, Clark cites how he's been led astray by a farmer's dream. As bitterly as Percival says, I hate God, I'm through with God, Clark says, Superman was never real, and seems to quit much as Percival does. For more elaboration on Clark's crisis of faith, refer back to episode 64 on commitment. Well, we know what happens with Clark. He enters a solitary wandering period while the rest of the story goes on without him, as Lex prepares his endgame and Bruce prepares the spear, just as Gawain adventures are all occurring in the meantime. For the first time since Clark's debut, the never-ending battle is put on hold. He puts aside the cape and hikes in lonely solitude, ascending the mountain seemingly to die. As the goat herder's subtitles say, he can see the mountain's not passable, he's come here to die. Well, we know that the mountain and his predicted demise is metaphorical, not literal. Clark is not at an impasse with the mountain, but with the just world problem. What's the point if bad things happen when you do good? And yet, even in this hike, there's hope. Clark knows that there is no answer, that it's not passable, but still he ascends in search of the impossible. We see the same with Percival. Despite his loss of faith, despite his failure, despite the divine law preventing anyone from returning to the Grail Castle, he keeps at his quest. Even in their pain, both Percival and Clark know the value of listening to themselves, instead of repressing and shoving it all down to carry on. 
they are attentive to the issue inside, instead of just turning to performance to fix that feeling. And an effort to dialogue with the depths of the human soul and the psyche, and also to recognize that if we're in a meaningful relationship to our own souls, then we can go through difficult times, we can suffer, we can experience conflict and defeat, and still feel the rightness of our lives. But on the other hand, we can do all the right things as defined by our family of origin or our popular culture, and there's something empty and aching inside, and the internal satisfaction is registered symptomatically. So I could do all the right things, for example, and feel the emptiness of it, or feel depressed, or been self-medicating, or whatever. So all of those are really reminders that we have to pay attention to something very deep within us that is our natural wisdom and is seeking to communicate with us, and on a daily basis is critiquing things. And it might make sense once in a while to stop and pay attention to that. Just as Clark encounters herders who comment on his journey to die, Percival encounters pilgrims who remind him it's Good Friday, the day Christ was to die. Like the pause in Clark's never-ending battle, Percival's vow never to sleep in the same bed twice until the grail is found is put on hold when Percival comes across a hermit who has secluded himself for spiritual reasons. There comes a moment in this quest when he comes to a hermitage. Before Parsifal speaks a word, the old hermit, with his clairvoyant quality, berates him with the long list of his faults and failures. Again, the worst was his failure to ask the healing question when he was in the Grail Castle. The hermit quickly grows gentle with Parsifal. Comes to the hermit, and the hermit says, come in, have dinner. When he sits down, the hermit says, let's say grace. Parsifal says, I don't say grace. I hate God. The hermit says, you hate God? Who's crazy here? Says, God returns manifold what you give to him. Give him love and you'll have his love. Give him hate and you'll have his hate. This is an interesting thought that the relation to God is a function of you. This is a very important point. God as a reflex of the spirit of the devotee. If you hate, hate is going to come to you. If you love, love is going to come to you. And so says Traverson, who do you think is being hurt by this hatred of yours. He said, to talk that way, you talk like a fool. We've already seen how in the first scene, the young boy is deeply spiritually ignorant. By the end of the romance, this religious ignorance has been overcome. This happens with the help of Percival's uncle. Percival's uncle happens to be a hermit, a man who lives alone in the forest for religious purposes. And it is Percival's uncle who instructs the knight on what his duties as a Christian are. Okay, the many parallels with our Superman are astounding. Consider the revelation that the hermit is Percival's uncle. As the brother of Percival's long-dead father, this is about as close as Kratian can get to resurrecting Percival's father to advise him from the afterlife, without holograms, AI, clones, or inexplicable visions. In fact, I may as well spoil it now, it turns out that the Grail King is also another uncle. And so, the seminal points of Percival's journey all deal with father figures who literally share the blood and the genes of his father. Even the old knight is, in a way, a father-in-law, the uncle of Blanche Fleur. The story is saying in no uncertain terms that you can quest all you want and become the world's greatest knight, but wherever that takes you, to obtain the grail, you must come to terms with your father issues. The old knight, the grail king, and the hermit all act as surrogates for Percival's absent father and their issues of incompetence, of violence, of abandonment, of impotence, of woundedness, of isolation, and of faith. Darth Vader is a modern creature of the dark side, and a sharp twist on the Arthurian conflict between father and son. 
what really grabs the audience more than anything is the underlying psychological motif or fantasy where you get eroded by the evil side, the, the anger, the bitterness. That great traditional story of the battle between father and son, which has so many psychological implications. For all our talk of Fisher King wounds, in the end, isn't it often the case it has something to do with the father? Where Bruce goes to his version of seeking the father, we have this whole thing of the atonement of the father and the redemption in the eyes of the father. And I think that, that this is a Bruce's version. It also parallels the earlier Lex scene that we talked about where Lex was at the mantelpiece of his father. And Bruce goes to the mantelpiece of his father, just as Clark goes to the mantelpiece of his father, which has a simple relationship to the land. He's a farmer. So he has this relationship to the earth. You know, everyone has this. Wayne's have this relationship to like commerce and industry. And I think that that's how each character reflects their internal struggle is sort of through these three different environments. And they are kind of all are leading to this. They're all coming to this to a head here. Clearly, Man of Steel, a film released on Father's Day, revolves around Clark dealing with his fathers and in BVS, beautifully coming to terms with the father who raised him. I miss you, son. I miss you too, Dad. Okay, another parallel is of Solitude and the Hermit Within. In Percival, the Hermit is a literal and separate character. And of course, in Man of Steel, Jonathan starts out that way, but metaphorically, the Hermit is the blood of Percival's blood, and this is an encounter with himself. And in BVS, this is the Jonathan that springs forth from Clark when he needs him most, again encountering himself. Whereas much of the Superman mythos has mistakenly marked the Fortress of Solitude for brooding and moods, Percival and BVS recognize the remarkable value of spiritual retreat. I know the last thing you want to hear about right now is more distancing and isolation, <laughs> but please keep an open mind to it as a source of insight and strength. The hermit is the highly introverted part of one's nature that has been waiting and storing energy in a far-off corner waiting for this very moment. Extroversion is the usual dominant of the first half of one's life, and that is correct. But when one's extroversion has run its race and taken one on that very valuable part of life journey, then one must consult the hermit deep inside for the next step. We do this very badly in our culture, and very few people know how to draw upon the genius of their introvert's nature for the next step. It frequently happens to a modern person Person that he is forced into his introversion by an illness or accident or paralyzing symptom of some kind. The hermit is a noble figure and will serve you well if you can go to him in honor and dignity. There is little dignity left if one is dragged into his realm by accident or illness, but one way or another he will have you sometime about the middle of your journey, dignity or no dignity. This hermit energy can be a marker of midlife and introversion, showing that Superman isn't just for the young and extroverted. To do justice to the hermit, we must speak at least briefly about those whose hermit's nature has been so strong that it has been the dominant feature of their personality. These few people, born hermits, highly introverted souls, must remain in the forest, symbolically speaking, in solitude, storing up energy so that they may serve mankind when their quality is crucial and of the highest value. There are few Red Knight victories for these persons, and they know little of the laurel leaves of victory. Such people receive very little encouragement or reinforcement these days, and they often 
often have a lonely and solitary life to lead, but a day comes when their genius is absolutely necessary to make a transition to another stage of life, for themselves or for someone in their environment. Just to know of this validity is a safeguard for such a person. Please be good to your own hermit quality or the born hermit in your circle of friends. If you have a born hermit as a son, don't push him into Red Knight experiences, but let him find his own forest way. The Superman mythos has always understood this value, with the fortress, the secret identity, and the guise of Clark Kent. In our stories, their solitude is not for their own sake, but for the enlightenment it brings and the path back to others. Where I thought to travel outward, I travel to the center of my own existence. And where I thought to be alone, I shall be with all the world. Even if you take after the hermit more than the knight, be sure to broaden your horizons. I've been exposed all my life to a wide variety of religions, cultures, traditions, ethnicities from all over. And no matter how far I've gone from the United States, no matter how many different people I've met, I can conclude at the end of the day, we all are human beings. We, we may practice different things, have different cultures, different beliefs, but we all are human beings. And one of my very favorite quotes of all time is by Mark Twain. And Mark Twain said, travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And that is so true. If not with your body, at least with your mind. Medieval literature taught me that on a fundamental level, at least, humans are humans are humans across time and space and geography. And medieval romance taught me that we all worry about the same fundamental things. Death, betrayal, loneliness. You know, we all want the same things. Friendship, love, to be valued. And we need these kind of soul-shaking, transformative moments of meeting people who are not like us, whether they're on the page or in reality, to make us better people, just more compassionate human beings. Okay, the third parallel is how the Hermit's advice addresses the just world problem. Here, John Green briefly summarizes research showing our susceptibility to this fallacy. Let's begin at the University of California at Berkeley, where for the last couple of years, psychologists have been engaging in a series of fascinating experiments centered on the board game Monopoly, because, you know, that's what psychologists do with grant money. So all these Monopoly games are set up, but in each of them, one player has a huge advantage, like starting with more money, for instance. Basically, the game is rigged, but the crazy thing is that the people the game is rigged in favor of come to believe over time that the game is more fair than it actually is and that in fact they deserve their advantages. Similarly, a bunch of studies have shown that rich and or successful people tend to be the least empathetic, the least generous, and this is completely true, they are more likely to steal candy from a baby. This is all a function of something called the just world fallacy. Most of us believe, and in fact can't help but believe, that people in essence get what they deserve in life. And the just world fallacy has the effect of making rich or successful people less empathetic and less generous because they believe that they deserve their success and that also people who are less successful deserve that lack of success. But it's important to note that this doesn't just apply to like Wall Street bankers, it's also true for all of us. But the weirdest and most troubling part of this research is that no matter who you give the advantage to in these rigged games of Monopoly, people tend to behave in pretty much the same way. That means that on some level, people aren't wielding power power is wielding people. So to summarize, I hope we can be aware of the unfair monopoly trap and try not to fall into it. Let's try to remember that the world isn't just, because only then will we have the power to change it. It is far easier to reckon with a just world. Save the farm, eat your hero cake, 
Save damsels in distress be acclaimed as the world's greatest knight. The problem is when one becomes conscious that the world is unjust, and drowning horses or weeping damsels haunt you. Both Percival and Clark have done as they've been told and as they believed. It might be fair to say they've done nothing wrong, and yet the outcomes don't reflect their intentions and actions. How can being just a guy who wants to help result in alleged responsibility for dozens of deaths? How can being the world's greatest knight, the model of chivalry, doom an entire kingdom to the wasteland? These painful revelations cause both to initially reject their ideas, doubt the source, unable to find an answer. And in this, the Hermit and Jonathan actually agree. They do not quote-unquote solve the just world problem. Instead, they help Percival and Clark to accept it as a part of the structure of life. So number one, resilient people know that suffering is part of life. This doesn't mean they actually welcome it in, they're not actually delusional, just that when the tough times come, they seem to know that suffering is part of every human existence. And knowing this stops you from feeling discriminated against when the tough times come. Never once did I find myself thinking, why me? In fact, I remember thinking, why not me? Terrible things happen to you just like they do everybody else. That's your life now, time to sink or swim. The real tragedy is that not enough of us seem to know this any longer. We seem to live in an age where we're entitled to a perfect life, where shiny, happy photos on Instagram are the norm, when actually the very opposite is true. The Hermit lists Percival's failures. Jonathan talks about his nightmares. They acknowledge the reality of the pain going from being an unconscious hero to feeling like a conscious failure. And they acknowledge that we are accountable for the pain that we caused, even if unconscious or unintended. This is necessary because some take the abhorrent alternative to continue to insist that the world is perfectly just, so obviously the victims of all their actions must have been wicked and deserved it, meaning that the Langs and the Weeping Damsels must have done something to offend God, right? No. Both father figures acknowledge that accepting the pain is the proper response, not rewriting reality to reject it. Both say that the best one can do is to focus on love. Love your God. Love Lois. Even if it doesn't make an imperfect world just, it allows you to live in it. When I met your mother, she gave me faith that there's good in this world. She was my world. Number two. Resilient people are really good at choosing carefully where they select their attention. They have a habit of realistically appraising situations and typically managing to focus on the things that they can change and somehow accept the things that they can't. This is a vital, learnable skill for resilience. As humans, we are really good at noticing threats and weaknesses. We are hardwired for that negative. We're really, really good at noticing them. Negative emotions stick to us like Velcro, whereas positive emotions and experiences seem to bounce off like Teflon. Being able to switch the focus of your attention to also include the good has been shown by science to be a really powerful strategy. So in 2005, Marty Seligman and colleagues conducted an experiment. All they asked people to do was think of three good things that had happened
happened to them each day. What they found over the six-month course of this study was that those people showed higher levels of gratitude, higher levels of happiness, and less depression over the course of the six-month study. Even if injustice is inescapable, all you can do is try. Number three, resilient people ask themselves: Is what I'm doing helping or harming me? This is a question that's used a lot in good therapy, and boy, is it powerful. This question can be applied to so many different contexts. Asking yourself whether what you're doing, the way you're thinking, the way you're acting, is helping or harming you puts you back in the driver's seat. It gives you some control over your decision making. It's more of an idea of self-reflection, where he is experiencing in this very Joseph Campbellian way this reconnection. Instead of going to talk to his space dad, if you will, he goes to his human father, who he's internalized, to teach him about thing that he already knows. In this simple story about trying to do the right thing, often can have tragic result. But in this case, you have to try. You have to try. I think the lesson is you have to try. You do the best you can. Zach alludes to our fourth and final point on this part that we often need to be taught that which we already know. We mean this literally and superficially, but also deeply and practically. On the surface, this is literally a lesson Clark already knows. Most interpret Jonathan's story to come from a memory past. Similarly, there is nothing novel in the hermit's instruction to Percival. Now, none of this instruction is very remarkable. What the hermit tells Percival and what Percival learns from the pilgrims is all pretty basic Christianity. But deceptively simple wisdom only takes shape and meaning after the difficulties they've experienced. The story that Clark heard in his youth now resonates with what he's been going through. Similarly, Percival could not understand faith until he actually needed it. To date, it had been empty instruction, but after a crisis of faith, it finally awakened something in him. This aligns with the psychological idea of the shadow, that journey within, to find answers to bring back to the conscious self. And this aligns with the mythological structure of the cycle, that journey without, to find the boon to bring back from where you had ventured forth. You have all the weapons you need. Now fight. I'm already there. It's easy to take that for granted, just as we dismiss the simple lessons we say we've known all along. But our present-day familiarity with the hero's journey mutes the significance of this structure. Dr. Nepper underscores the reason Young and Campbell were so taken with the story of Percival. Not all knightly heroes change. I think the only knightly protagonist who actually develops changes by developing is Percival in Percival. In the Romance of Percival or The Quest for the Grail. Lancelot in The Knight of the Cart or Gawain and the Green Knight, Galahad and so on, begin and end their stories as static characters. They don't change, grow, or develop along their adventures. Things just happen to them. When we talk about adventures that the knight protagonist has in his quest, it does mean a challenge, that he faces challenges, but adventure also comes from the old French aventure, which means chance or by chance. So what it appears to be is that the knight goes out and has all these random encounters, these things that happen by chance. 
In actuality, of course, the romance writer engineers those chance events because he has something to say through them. And there you see a model for a different sort of story that many critics clamor for. A hero with an untouchable, immutable character artificially put into scenarios engineered to make a point, set a mood, or elicit an emotion. By contrast, an organic approach to storytelling is what inspired the Campbellian hero cycle so many take for granted today. What excited Young and Campbell about the story of Percival was a story of development that mirrored our own. So a lot of the literature in the Middle Ages was didactic, which means that it was meant to teach its listener something. It's true these stories have a point, but the Percival stands out with how the lessons are learned organically. Now, this is all very paradoxical. I began by saying that the grail in literature is often very mysterious, but all the lessons it teaches us here are very obvious. There's no mystery to the grail. I don't think that I'm missing something here. In fact, this is something that happens very commonly in medieval literature. Medieval literature most frequently tells us something we already know or we already should know. The basic lessons of most of medieval literature are we should love God and neighbor. We shouldn't be proud. We should do good works. We should go to church. Cratian is aware of this paradox, this irony, that he's teaching us something obvious, but doing so in very mysterious symbols. We know that Cratian is aware of this because he has one of his characters in the romance communicate this fact. This character says, it is surprising when one doesn't learn what is often seen and heard. Cratian thus shows us that he knows he's teaching us the obvious. Why then make a mystery of it? Why wrap this very obvious teaching in the grail? The reason to make it mysterious is that this simply increases our chances of learning the message and taking it to heart. Another character in the Percival says, things that are had for nothing are not nearly so sweet and delightful as those for which we pay dearly. Things, therefore, need to be acquired through sweetness and through delight. It's more fun to read this romance. It's more sweet and delightful than to listening to a sermon. And Cratian is aware of this, that we're more apt to pay attention to the romance if it's mysterious, if it's fun to read, if it's evocative, than if he simply sat down to write a sermon. In short, the reason that Cratian writes such an elaborate romance is to show us the preciousness of the message that he includes inside the romance. Critics often claim that there is nothing insightful with what these characters went through. I never had to kill to know not to. Wasn't Lois already his world before all this began? But the critic ignores what these stories highlight, that the lessons we already know aren't truly learned at first. Professor of Psychology at Yale, Dr. Lori Santos. This is the fallacy. It's this mistaken idea that knowing is half the battle, right? G.I. Joe used to think that when you learn, look both ways when you cross the street, that you're kind of done. Now you know how to do it. But the claim is that this actually isn't true. Merely knowing something is not enough to put into practice. Merely knowing something is not enough to actually change your behavior. And that's the G.I. Joe fallacy. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, the process of living seems to consist of coming to realize truths so ancient and simple that if stated, they sound like barren platitudes. They cannot sound otherwise to those who have not had the relevant experience. That is why there is no real teaching of such truths possible. End quote. This is the unbreakable sword that one weeping damsel prophesied about before, given to him by a father figure to break at a critical moment, but once reforged, never to break again. At first, the fatherly advice is nothing but trite sayings. Everything happens for a reason. Just do your best. Follow your heart. Be yourself. Time heals all, and with great power. But when these lessons become yours, through life, they become something profound, beyond the cliché container of words. 
they become the weapons you need. Your sword, metaphorically and literal in the case of Percival as the next part of his story will show. Percival leaves the hermit and continues on his quest, and unbeknownst to him, he is nearer to the grail than ever before. After three days horseless, hungry, and traveling by foot along the shore, he comes across an elaborate ship hung with satin and velvet. And when Sir Percival saw this, he hied him thither, and found the ship covered with silk more blacker than any bear, and therein was a gentlewoman of great beauty, and she was clothed richly that none might be better. A lady of immeasurable beauty steps off the ship and offers to provide him lodging and rest. Weary, Percival is glad for the relief and accepts. As her attendants prepare an elaborate tent for him along with food and drink, they make introductions. She explains that she's a disinherited damsel. What are ye, said Sir Percival, that proffered me thus great kindness? I am, said she, a gentlewoman that am disherited, which was sometime the richest woman of the world. Once a bride-to-be, but let go when she hurt the pride of her would-be husband by speaking but a single wrong word. Herself, too proud to put up with such sensitivity, now lived off her immense dowry independent, available, and in need of a knight. This is a change of pace for Percival after fasting three days and having stayed with the humble hermit. Now to this luxurious pavilion, a river of wine and a feast fit for a king. And so there was set enough upon the table, and thereon so much that he had marvel, for there was all manner of meats that he could think on. Also he drank there the strongest wine that ever he drank, him thought. Not to mention the change in company. Percival was constantly fighting or holed up with hermits or beset by damsels in distress who needed his help and weeping damsels who'd curse him. And of course that hideous damsel, the grail messenger, who had humiliated him before all of King Arthur's court. Here the disinherited damsel of the ship offers him relief, rest, feast, and friendliness, while being a fair sight to behold. The exact opposite of the impossibly ugly hideous damsel. There is a great urge in a man at this stage of his life to try to find a new fair damsel as protection from the hideous damsel, but unless he comes to terms with the dark element first, no old or new damsel of any description will save him from this dark time of his life. So consider the temptation. He is being offered rest from an endless and impossible quest feast instead of fasting and deprivation, and whereas he had once mistakenly eaten meals meant for other men, this time it was all his, along with wine and drink to dull the senses, attendants to wait on him hand and foot, serving him instead of all his steadfast loyalty to a kingdom that has never been repaid. The disinherited damsel offers him respect and honor for his station as knight, instead of a recounting of all his follies and failures, all his embarrassments as a young fool. An opportunity to forget all that, forget everything, utter freedom from society, responsibility, rules, or requirements. And of course, beyond all her wealth, riches, releases, and comforts, she offers her arm, her hand, her body, her bed. It's fair to say he's being seduced. <laughs> After all his wandering in the desert, he faces this temptation. But by the grace of God, he catches a glint of light from the hilt of his sword. And when he looks at it, the shape suddenly reminds Percival of Christ on the cross. No longer spellbound, he wakes from being mesmerized and sincerely makes the sign of the cross. And at once, the disinherited damsel is revealed to be the devil, who angrily disappears in a black cloud of smoke. Percival falls to his knees. 
and thanks God. Then Sir Percivale perceived it was a fiend, the which would have brought him unto his perdition. Then he commended himself unto God, and prayed our Lord to keep him from all such temptations. And now faith has truly become his to wield. Then was Sir Percivale alone, and as the tale telleth, he was one of the men of the world at that time, which most believed in our Lord Jesus Christ, for in those days there were but few folks that believed in God perfectly. For in those days the son spared not the father, no more than a stranger. And so Sir Percivale comforted himself in our Lord Jesus, and besought God no temptation should bring him out of God's service, but to endure as his true champion. This is the culmination of a journey from the very first scene in the story back in the wild woods, before he was a knight and before he knew anything, when he had heard what he had thought to be the devil and refused his mother's advice to make the sign of the cross, and clung to his hunting javelins instead in the naive belief it was weapon enough to defeat the devil. This time, however, his physical weapons are what remind him that his true weapons are within. But along with this rudimentary teaching, Percival learns something that is much more sophisticated. He learns the power of signs and of symbols. In essence, he learns how to interpret. I mentioned earlier when I talked about the first scene of the romance that Percival refused to make the sign of the cross. This is a very small action, but it's significant because here Percival is rejecting the cross, but secondarily, he's also rejecting the power of signs. We could see that Percival clearly had to learn what knightly weapons were and how to use them, but he also has to learn what signs are and how to use them. And one uses signs by interpreting them. In the course of the romance, Percival does become the skilled interpreter of signs. He learns to understand that a sign doesn't necessarily look like what it means. He learns that a beautiful sign doesn't have a morally good meaning, necessarily. Beauty doesn't guarantee moral goodness or spiritual worth. He made that mistake in the first scene. He thought that the chief knight was God because he was beautiful. Now he learns that God cannot be seen directly. However, God can be seen through signs. One of the pilgrims who instructs Percival tells him Jesus was God and man. The virgin gave birth to a son in whom God assumed flesh and blood, and his divinity was concealed under the flesh of man. All this is certain. Percival learns, in essence, that God doesn't look like what he expected him to. In fact, God, in the person of Jesus, looks rather ordinary. He looks like any other human being. But at the very end of the romance, Percival does come to actually see God. The last thing he does in the romance is receive Holy Communion. The last thing we're told is, on Easter Sunday, Percival very worthily received communion. In doing so, he received God in very unlikely form, under the form of bread. And under that form of bread, Percival can see God. Remember how he began. He didn't follow his mother's advice or he'd follow it without understanding. However, by the time Percival wards off the devil here, he has a full understanding of the advice and its implications. It's not a blind adherence. It's someone who has lived through events, embodies the experience, and now executes the earlier simple advice with advanced, deep knowledge and appreciation. And so we've come full circle. And if Percival was advising his own child, he'd say, make the sign, knowing that his child wouldn't understand it fully until years down the line. Note that these lessons need not be religious or supernatural in nature. In some sense, the supernatural nature of the encounter is besides the point. Consider that the disinherited damsel provided a perfectly plausible rationale for the entire episode. If her origin story were completely true and independent of the devil, 
she still would have represented a blow to everything that Percival had vowed and viewed as sacred until then. He would still be cheating on his wife, still betraying Camelot, still abandoning the Fisher King, and still giving up on his ideals. So even if there was nothing supernatural about the situation, Percival's experiences helped him to keep to his quest and ideals at the critical moment. Of course, in another sense, the damsel being the devil is precisely the point. In his inaugural episode, Percival misinterprets completely material knights as a spiritual threat. Now, much more wise in the world, by logic and senses alone, there was no reason to ward the devil off. Only by spirit, intuition, his spontaneous self did he understand the danger and make the sign, which proves itself in that cloud of black smoke. So the blind act of faith leads to visible confirmation, which only renews and strengthens his faith further. This turns his mother's teachings into truth, turns his mentor's instructions personal, renews the meaning of his vows and commitments to chivalry, knighthood, Camelot, and Blanche. Before, he didn't recognize the spiritual. I didn't see it, Lowe. Standing right there, and I didn't see it. I'm afraid I didn't see it because I wasn't looking. While this time, he recognized the devil with nothing natural to suggest it. Sword of Omens, give me sight beyond sight. The unbreakable sword, the weapon within. So where do we see this with our Superman? There's a mythology around Superman, which is why there are kind of all these religious aspects to Superman. There are all these kind of, frankly, godlike parallels. Lex is the Satan. He's the kind of all evil. You know, in the same way, Satan is sometimes depicted as charming. So Lex in that way is like the kind of mythological evil. While Lex's offer atop LexCorp Tower is not nearly as attractive as the Devil's, it's still a temptation of sorts. In the same way, the Devil offers Percival an escape from obligations and virtues. Lex offers Superman the way of compromise, an easier way out, if only he'll give up on being good. Killing Batman is an injury only to his morals, and the much easier route than standing by them to let Martha die. And yet, even with this temptation before him, even with every excuse to end Batman, even with his own life and the life of his mother at stake, Superman resists. His sword is unbreakable. Reforged on the mountain, having lived through taking Zod's life, he will not do it again. If I wanted it, you'd be dead already. And so the last lesson learned from this incident, and honestly, the inspiration for this entire miniseries, revolves around Zack's publication of Arthur Hacker's painted rendition of this scene on Vero. Entitled The Temptation of Sir Percival, it serves to show the interaction between temptation and faith. In all cases, note that it is when one is closest to the grail that the powers and principalities conspire to tempt you away, and in that asymmetry of information, only one's faith can sustain them. And if you pass the test, it renews and rewards that faith. It shows clearly their goal and their adversary. These become clearer because if what is sought is unobtainable, why would it need to be opposed with temptation? For Percival, he doesn't know it, but the grail is just around the corner. And if all he used was his past years to predict the next, the grail would seem to remain yet years away and far off. But the devil knows how near he is and seeks to derail him from his quest. That devil is revealed in a cloud of black smoke. 
And for Superman, he doesn't know that he's bringing the superhero into being and will inspire a new age of heroes. If anything, he's doubted his place in the world and what he's doing, even skeptical if he should continue. But ironically, it's Lex that sees so clearly what Superman will be and mean to the world if not killed or corrupted first, which is why he sets his plans into motion and tries to tempt or terminate Superman before he attains the status of superhero. Lex is clearly revealed to Superman as the villain behind the curtain on that helipad as the devil was to Percival in that cloud of black smoke. And for us who have waited, believed, hoped, and quested after the truer version of Justice League, we could not know that when Zack made mention of temptation in December, he had already received the calls and been in talks earlier that our efforts, like Percival, like Superman, had brought us closer than we knew. But in all three cases, the peril is real. Percival could have given up on his quest. Superman could compromise his character and kill for convenience. And we might have stopped, or Zack might have compromised. But in persisting, it became clear that what we had fought for was real. It exists. The ability to persevere the temptation and doubt comes down to a question of faith. Not to be conflated or confused with belief, intellectual knowledge, facts, or information, though the two concepts are related. We can use two versions of Percival to illustrate. Borman's Excalibur renders the temptation of Percival differently. Morgana tries to seduce him from his quest with the same drink, rest, and company, but also tries to plant the seed of doubt behind his goal. Quote, there is no grail as these good knights have found. Found, end quote. But when Percival overcomes temptation, the goal is renewed in his mind and he screams, no, there is a grail. And in fact, his first encounter with the grail is immediately afterwards. It had been just around the corner. This question of alternative facts or belief is perhaps the kind of message that Zack was trying to rebuff in December with his post, is it real? Does it exist? Of course it does. If one's underlying facts can be undermined, it's hard to sustain faith. But faith is more than just facts. After all, for the traditional version of Percival, there was no doubt that the Grail existed. He had seen it with his own eyes during his failure at the Grail Castle. And for Clark, it was a matter of fact that he had done good in the world, if only by saving it from Zod. And for many of us pursuing Zack's Justice League from the beginning, existence was never really a question. No, where faith enters the picture, it's a more nebulous area of uncertainty, ultimately of worth and possibility. Percival knows that the Grail exists, but was all his questing and sacrifice worth it? Is achieving the Grail Castle a second time actually possible, given all his struggle, his long wait, and everyone telling him otherwise? Superman knows that he can change the world, give them an ideal, but is it worth it? When the outcomes don't align with your intentions, when villains like Lex twist his actions and sabotage his efforts, and everyone is criticizing his actions, is chasing Zack's Justice League worth it, given all the obstacles, costs, criticisms, and naysayers? This is the difference between the naive fool who acts because they don't know any better, and the wise one of faith who knows all the risks, pays the cost personally, and still says, I have to try. We need both. We need the fools with beginners' minds willing and able to act when the elders see only obstacles. But these swords are brittle and tend to break when faced with failure. And that's where the tenacity of the faithful can go the distance. 
We have other dreams, quests, and causes in our life that seem equally unattainable, but we must be resilient to see them realized and be mindful of when we're being tempted, because instead of being a discouragement, it may mean that the grail is just around the corner. And so let's turn that corner and return to and conclude the story of Percival. So after narrowly avoiding temptation, Percival has reclaimed his faith and sets forth on his quest again. Meanwhile, you may remember that when we last left Gawain, he had gone in quest of the Bleeding Lance. Well, through those crazy and varied adventures, Gawain finally meets the woman who will be his wife. And all of Camelot is amazed by this because no one can imagine Gawain settling down. To give you some sense of this, listen to how, in an earlier episode, Gawain tries to convince the newlywed Yvaine to abandon his wife and go questing instead. He comes up to Yvaine and says, bruh, you can't just stay here with this lady forever. What kind of a life is that for a knight? How old are you? What, you're a kid. You can't just stay here as a married man forever. You have quests to do and things to do to prove yourself as a knight. You can't just stay here and wither away. And he goes, no, I'm very happily married. I'm in love, Gawain. <laughs> and Gawain <laughs> gives one of my favorite quotes in all Arthurian literature because I think it's so ridiculous. It says, what would you be one of those men, said my lord Gawain to Yvain, who are worth less because of their wives? May he who diminishes his worth by marrying be shamed by Holy Mary. He who has a beautiful woman as wife or sweetheart should be the better for her, for it's not right for her to love him if his fame and worth are lost. Indeed, you would suffer afterwards for her love if it caused you to lose your reputation, because a woman will quickly withdraw her love, and she's not wrong to do so if she finds herself hating a man who has lost face in any way after he has become lord of the realm. A man must be concerned with his reputation before all else. Break the leash and yoke and let us, you and me, go to the tourneys so no one can call you a jealous husband. Now is not the time to dream your life away, but to frequent tournaments, engage in combat, and joust vigorously whatever it might cost you. He who hesitates achieves nothing. So, as you can see, Gwen's attitude ordinarily precludes marriage. He objectifies women, objects to settling down, obsesses over reputation, offers everything to the fight, and is overly prone to extremes. And you could argue that all of these things are apparent in our BVS Batman. He objectifies women, can't maintain a stable relationship, he's willing to die for his legacy, he will sacrifice everything to crime fighting, and he who hesitates achieves nothing is similar to how he deploys the 1% doctrine. But again, in his crazy quest for the bleeding lance, Gawain gets beat up, humbled, and manages to fall madly in love. So all of Camelot is rejoicing and preparing the biggest wedding and celebration the kingdom has ever seen. The details are less important than the result for the following parallel. There's a powerful ruler, Gramoflans, who stands in the way of Gawain's wedding. Gawain has an appointment to fight and defeat Gramoflans in the morning so he can get married. Gawain and Gramoflans both wear a special garland, so each can recognize the other as their opponent, even with all their armor on, and among all the countless knights who are gathering to attend Gawain's wedding. Only unbeknownst to Gawain, Gramoflans has manipulated the situation such that Percival appears wearing the special garland in place of Gramoflans. And so... Gawain rides forth. He sees a knight in red armor. 
coming. That knight is wearing the wreath plucked from the tree, and he thinks it's Gramophlance. We know who it is. It's Parsifal, who has plucked the branch. Parsifal sees the knight wearing the wreath. It's Gawain, and he thinks it's Gramophlance. Gawain sees the knight wearing the wreath, and he thinks it's Gramophlance. And these two brother knights, you might say, ride at each other in combat. And they're at it, with Gawain gradually losing. When Gawain's squires chance by and they see and they shout his name, Parsifal tosses his sword away and says, I am betrayed. I am fighting my own blood, my own brother. It's not blood, it's a spiritual brother. And so they meet. So a master manipulator who makes two would-be brothers fight instead, but are saved when a name is shouted and their brotherhood recognized? Right. If you made it this far in, you don't need me to point out the parallels to BVS. <laughs> well, the drama with Gramophlands is resolved, and Gawain gets married, and Camelot has the wildest party ever. Let's just say it's a situation where keeping one's virtue and vows is nearly impossible. Nonetheless, despite being without companionship for years, years, and the entire court freely engaging in every vice available. Percival's newfound faith gives him the strength to avoid all temptation, keep his commitment to Blanche, and ride away from the party, although he's invited to join again and again. And there's a great festival of love. Love in the moonlight among the pavilions, says Wolfram. And Parsifal is there. And he thinks, should I participate in this event? And he says, how can I participate when my heart is somewhere else and my eyes behold all this joy? I will leave. This is the great moment of Parsifal. In the loyalty to his love, in the midst of all this seduction and temptation, he is not seduced. And on the other hand, in combat, he is never afraid. He is without fear and without desire, in the name, however, of love. You remember the temptation of the Buddha under the tree? The temptation of desire, the temptation of fear, and he transcended. This is exactly the same temptation. And Parsifal, not in the way of world escape, but in the way just of world attack, living in the world, has reached that position. The uh, invitation goes out to Parsifal. We're having a wonderful time here. Good marriage of Sir Gawain. Be with us. And when Parsifal saw all this going on, his own heart was loyal, and he couldn't stay there. So out of love, he leaves the greatest party the Middle Ages has ever seen and goes riding away. As Percival rides away, from out of the forest comes a dark knight, clearly a pagan knight, the sworn enemies of Camelot. Percival assumes that the pagan knight means to attack the wedding party. Amidst their revelry and drunkenness, without their arms and armor, they would be slaughtered. And so Percival rides at the pagan knight, who lowers his lance and rides back at him, in an echo of the Fisher King's joust so long ago. Their lances splinter as they're thrown off their horses, and the greatest battle of all time ensues. Fight night, the greatest gladiator match in the history of the world. Ever since Percival took up arms, this is the first and only opponent to match him, though Percival is beginning to win. However, at the critical moment, Percival's sword breaks on the pagan knight's helm. Incidentally, I know that this is confusing because Percival has two unbreakable swords, similar to how the Sword in the Stone and Excalibur are actually two different swords often conflated as one. This is not the Faith Sword that had been reforged by a father figure and unbreakable thereafter. This is the magic sword given to him by the Fisher King and unbreakable until a critical moment. And so this was the critical moment and the prophesized break. And finally in the battle, the sword that Parsifal is using breaks on the other's head. 
The pagan knight stands over the weaponless Percival, sword in hand, and Percival imagines he will bookend the Fisher King's curse from killing a pagan knight by now dying to one. But instead, the pagan knight throws aside his sword, offers his hand, and helps Percival up. And the Oriental Knight says, well, no fame comes to me from dealing with a man without a sword. Let's sit down and talk. Pagan Knight throws his own sword away and says, I don't fight a man without weapons. Let's sit down. They sit down. They take off their helmets. The other knight is black and white. Percival is impressed by his honor, and the Pagan Knight is impressed by Percival's prowess. He tells Percival that he's come to Europe to find his father, and... Have you guessed it by now? Their fathers share the same name. Because he's one and the same, they're brothers. This man of a different creed, culture, country, class, and color is his brother. Another interesting member of the Grail community is Parsifal's Muslim half-brother, Fidifitz. His story is told at great length, and in fact bookends Parsifal's. Wolfram's romance begins when Parsifal's father has a child with a Moorish queen with whom he conceives a child, Fidifitz. The father, however, abandons his wife and child because they're not Christian. He then travels, marries Parsifal's mother, and conceives in turn Parsifal. The romance opens with the story of the conception of Fidifitz, and as you might expect, it ends when Fedefitz comes to Europe and finds his family. He comes looking for his father who's dead, and he comes unsuspecting upon Parzival. Here we expect to see brother fighting brother. However, the brothers come to recognize each other as brothers. It's his brother. Wolfram handles that in a beautiful way of the brothers fighting each out of honor, doing the other great harm, and so forth and so on. So they begin talking about their father, and Parzival says, well, there's a great party down the way. Perhaps you'd enjoy it. So they go back to the party. One way or another, while they're there, there appears on the horizon a tall pink mule, and riding on it is a lady with a stylish London hat. She rides up to Parsifal and says, come to the Grail Castle. Through your loyalty, you have achieved the adventure. And bring your friend. It is the return of the Grail Messenger, once known as the Hideous Damsel, whom I've mentioned before to be supernaturally ugly, but I never got into the graphic depictions of the menagerie of fauna that make up her countenance, because of this moment right here. Because now, with his spiritual eyes open and having done the work of the Grail, the Hideous Damsel appears to all in her true form as the Grail Maiden the one who carries the grail during the grail procession, and where the poets wax on and on about her as the epitome of beauty and womanhood, which I also mercifully abridged from our earlier retellings. <laughs> this reinforces the theme of things not being what they appear. Knights that are neither demons nor angels, tents that aren't churches, damsels that are the devil, enemies that are brothers, and now this hideous source of his humiliation will be the beautiful invitation to his ultimate attainment. This man is not our enemy. But he is not our enemy. It also relates to a lesser theme that there is progress when you work to attain the Grail, the greening of the wasteland. Even if you haven't attained the Grail yet, healed the Fisher King, or lifted the curse completely, it's important not to give up on the work, even in the time of searching and seeking in the desert. Even as Percival would curse God with his mouth, he'd serve him with his actions. Even as Superman would denigrate the cape by his words, he'd keep saving people every day. And even as Zack was dejected and insecure by what 
happened with Justice League, he kept making films. It's okay to feel what you feel, to be lost, questioning, or uncertain, but don't give up on the work. This is the symbolic reason for why the cut on Superman's cheek is healed by the self-sacrifice to the nuke. It is not yet full attainment that comes with full sacrifice, but it is work in that direction, and so he gets a smaller resurrection and a smaller restoration, the healing of his cheek before he returns from being run through. The in-story mechanical or logical reasons we'll discuss another time, but I'm sure you know this feeling or sensation when you know you're fulfilling your destiny and working towards your calling. Even if you haven't achieved it yet, you still reap some intangible benefits in the meantime. The restoration of the Grail Maiden's public appearance is a sign of stepping towards that final destiny. And Percival's brother is smitten with her the moment he sees her. Fitafitz is baptized, and he joins the Grail community, and at this point he even marries the Grail Maiden. There he is, baptized, and then not only does he see the Grail, but there appears on the Grail an inscription. And the inscription reads as follows. If any member of this community should, by the grace of God, become the ruler of an alien people, let him see to it that they are given their rights. I think that in the history of civilization, that's the first time such a thought has ever come in. The Magna Carta was 1210 in England, but that was the barons asking for their rights from the king. Here is the idea of the king is ruling, not in his name, but in the name of his people. So we have involved from marriage for love and love confirmed through loyalty in marriage and the rule for the people. Big stuff, early 13th century. Fire Fizz and the Grail Maiden's son is the legendary Prester John, who we'll discuss in a separate footnote, but he's born from the love of two peoples is the servant king to his people in the name of the king of kings, a mythological reminder that the greatest story ever told positions the most powerful being in a place of sacrifice for the sake of his people. This is a theme and a lesson that bears reminding that power doesn't exist for itself or its own ends, but that the mythological model is to protect, serve, and sacrifice. A perverse interpretation of Percival or of Superman suggests that they are guided by public pressure the entire time. Percival fails to ask the question due to social convention and then goes questing because he's been humiliated before Camelot and just trying to regain status. Or that Superman doesn't save Jonathan out of fear of public perception and that everything he does in BVS is a reaction to public pressure. Well, these are terrible and shallow takes that don't look at the timing, depth, and meaning of their decisions. It's true that both both Percival and Clark were shamed, but if anything, that drove them from their calling and service, not to it. Yes, shame is a necessary part of becoming conscious, but let's not mistake correlation with causation. Becoming aware of their failings isn't what drove them. No, that came from their own hearts, when allowed the space, time, and personal experience to get there. You cannot browbeat and humiliate people into enlightenment. With Jonathan, Superman lost a parent withholding his power, but on his father's word, unsure and conflicted about that decision even 16 years later. But with Martha in BVS, Superman risks losing another parent withholding his power, out of his own convictions and character. Bringing Lex Batman's head is the easiest out, but Jonathan's lessons of character and choice had become unbreakingly his. Even when he's told he doesn't know this world a thing and Lois pleads no, 
What he does isn't for accolades and acceptance, it's what he believes. It's his personal conviction. Likewise, Percival's commitment to the wounded king comes before he's been humiliated by the weeping and hideous damsels. It comes against temptation offering him easy alternatives, particularly by his peers and the public, such as the carnal invitations at the wedding. Even when he's told the divine law makes his quest impossible, Percival's compassion for the Fisher King is what drives him forward. It's what he believes. Percival is not driven by a guilt complex or glory, but personal conviction. His invitation to return to the Grail Castle has nothing to do with how bad he felt about his first visit. He had already reckoned with his mistake and all the wisdom he had attained since then. Instead, it was the quest to end the suffering of another, someone who had no hope or help. What moves the heart of heaven is Percival's commitment to the virtues of compassion and loyalty. Percival's compassion is why he seeks to heal the Fisher King. If you've ever suffered from chronic injury or pain, you might have an inkling of the Fisher King's persistent suffering. The pain grabs your attention. It's hard to think of anything else and not be distracted by the constant throbbing ache, punctuated by unexpected spikes of lancing fire shooting from the injury that sends shudders through your body. The pain completely occupies your unconscious as your body feels that it is in danger, under threat, nearly dying. Even if you can calm your thoughts, your body is alert, anxious, tense, and fatigued from the constant stress. You feel as if you've been holding your breath forever. The continual dread. Your nerves are on edge, simultaneously both hypervigilant and frayed and dulled. Meanwhile, everything else is numb. You can't taste, see, smell, or hear fully with your mind and senses in a never-ending fog of agony. You've heard the expression blinding pain precisely because this kind of wound blinds you to anything else but your pain. Accordingly, nothing can bring you joy anymore. Everything is filtered through your pain. No appetite, no patience, short temper, no ability to reminisce about the past or hope for the future. Pain embodies the mind into the immediate present and it seems impossible to picture a time without it. And I am only describing the physical dimensions of pain. Never mind all the mental, emotional, spiritual, and societal injuries we carry. Percival's persistence comes from seeing someone hurt in the world and being determined to help. To heal the one who could not heal himself, who couldn't ask for help the first time around. Imagine the Fisher King's eyes welling up as he sees Percival at long last able and willing to end his suffering. Imagine the smile on Percival's face as he finally fulfills his quest. <laughs> Someone, but it goes to waste. 
Percival asks the questions, breaks the spell, and the Fisher King is healed. The wasteland is no more, and Percival is reunited with Blanche Fleur and his two sons. The Fisher King reveals he is another of Percival's uncles, making Percival his successor and the new Grail King. Percival himself becomes the Grail King, representing the guardian of the highest spiritual value. The spiritual values are compassion and loyalty. And then his lovely wife, with now two little boys, uh, comes and there's a, a beautiful scene of reunion. And then Trevor Tent, the hermit, who had said, you can't do it, when Parsifal had said, I am going to do it. Trevor Tent says to him, you, through your tenacity of purpose, have changed God's law. That's big talk. And again, we have the theme that we are all connected. We are all family. And when you lay down arms and talk, when you seek to help and heal, it turns out you do so with your brother, your uncle, your blood. What you do for them you are doing for yourself. To Percival, the Fisher King was at most a one-time gracious host, but mainly simply a stranger in need. He doesn't owe the Fisher King a thing, and yet, in following the virtues of compassion and loyalty towards the King's need and his beloved Blanche Fleur, that Percival attains not only healing for the King and the land, but peace and enlightenment for himself. And so it is with Superman. The world is a mixed bag of bad and good, bullies yes, but beauty too. And Clark doesn't owe this world a thing, but nonetheless, he just wants to help, to do the right thing. And Clark's commitment to that not only restores Batman and saves the world, but sets the stage for his resurrection, his return, and his seat in the Justice League as the first among equals. His principles and powers that had problems, buckling in battle with Batman, will be reforged stronger than ever, returning more powerful than we've ever seen. And of course, the adventure of marriage, fatherhood, and beyond. The potential of a mature, enlightened Superman who's been on the hero's journey and back and carried that weight to give his actions and decisions the gravity and authority of that experience is something I can't wait to see on film one day. Instead of continually restarting the story from a naive place, all consequences cut off by each reboot, it's taken decades, but the comics have finally come to terms with Superman growing up going from bachelor to married, and still stumbling with him as a father, but getting there. 
let's not leave cinematic Superman a quarter century behind the mythos. Even Percival, the embodiment of a naive fool who comes out of the woods knowing nothing, grows up to be the Grail King. Let's not leave Superman forever stuck circling his origins. There are adventures and achievements that can only be attained out of maturity. Victor Frankl's famous line, What is to give light must endure burning. Let's not just play lip service to Superman's light. Well, this is the power of Percival's story, because it's a psychologically realistic depiction of achieving the impossible. Not just everything conveniently aligning in his favor, not just a blissful insistence and perfection, but how we blunder, believe, lose hope, lose faith. But if we keep doing the work, keep at it, sometimes our faith is rewarded, our dreams are realized, and we can do things that everyone says we can't. This isn't a promise or a guarantee. Most questing knights don't attain the grail, but it shows the possibility of moving heaven and earth with our hearts, with a demonstration of our compassion and loyalty. The announcement of the Snyder Cut is just a small taste of that kind of story. And the longer and deeper you've been in it, the more that will resonate with you. And I hope the more it becomes yours for all the other grail quests in your life. Okay, I've rambled on long enough. So thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please share the show and subscribe. I'm Doc, signing off. See you next time. So this episode was half written and recorded prior to the Snyder Cut announcement, but that announcement allowed me to trim down the parts on persistence and resilience and let reality parallel Percival's happy ending. However, shortly after that, the scope of that victory suddenly seemed so small in the face of the issues outstanding. And there were quite literally a dozen other themes, patterns and motifs, symbols and so on that we could discuss and learn from across these stories, and I might release them in a brief sometime later, but for now, let's just follow up on that footnote with Fire Fizz. So one of the themes of Percival is the value of questions. It's the means by which Percival reveals himself, heals the Fisher King, and is the crux of his journey. Through it, he learns to ask questions, read signs, decode symbols, and that things aren't always what they appear. He learns to see the spiritual beyond the material. This is a journey that these films take us on because they are filled with signs, symbols, and things that are more than they appear. These films don't spell out everything and beg you to ask questions, and you are enlightened if you ask them in the right spirit. If you're a longtime listener, no doubt you've seen that with this show going from starkly literal to mostly literary. Originally an emphasis on the logic, the material, the in-story reality, now unbelievably rewarded by the much less concrete but no less real influences, philosophy, symbols, and so on embedded within. Embedded in these questions are challenges to oneself, nature, society, and so on. Are my actions authentic or simply a shadow of external expectations? And in so many ways, we're sort of creating a kind of narrative along the way as we try to make sense of our lives. And many times our stories are provisional based on that time, that place, our way of seeing at that moment, but we can get stuck in our stories. Maybe the stories that have gotten us into trouble, that sabotaged a relationship or caused a depression, or the stories that we've been serving that are no longer worthy of the soul's intent. And many times the prejudicial nature of that story means what appeared to be true of that time and that place often gets 
extrapolated into other times and places so that we become prisoners of those stories. And the responsibility to ask. So it's like as we become aware of stuff, then we can have a choice and responsibility to do something about it or not. Learning to decode stories is a step towards decoding our lives. As Zach was recently asked, is this a cryptic message or a piece of art? And he correctly replied, always both. <laughs> One could point out that Percival ends up where the critics always argued that Superman should have started. That is, that Percival defies the world and insists there must be a way, and eventually there is. Similarly, that Superman should not have killed and hoped and found that there is always another way, and that the story should have allowed for that in his first encounter with Zod. Hopefully, through this series, you can see the difference between these two journeys, even if the outcome of an impossibility occurring is the same. The first circumstance is the benefit of the beginner's mind, and true to a point. Where the expert only sees obstacles, the beginner sees possibility. And we can credit some of the Snyder cut to this perspective in the context of the streaming wars. The new paradigm allows them to see the possibility that entrenched systems did not. And that seed of truth is why it's something so often put into our superhero origin films. In fact, that's how the Fisher King story is condensed in the Fisher King film. Did you ever hear the story of the Fisher King? No. It begins with the king as a boy, having to spend the night alone in the forest to prove his courage so he can become king. And while he's spending the night alone, he's visited by a sacred vision. Out of the fire appears the Holy Grail, symbol of God's divine grace. And a voice said to the boy, You shall be keeper of the Grail so that it may heal the hearts of men. But the boy was blinded by greater visions of a life filled with power and glory and beauty. And in this state of radical amazement, he felt for a brief moment not like a boy, but invincible, like God. So he reached in the fire to take the grail, and the grail vanished, leaving him with his hand in the fire to be terribly wounded. Now as this boy grew older, his wound grew deeper, until one day, life for him lost its reason. He had no faith in any man, not even himself. He couldn't love or feel loved. He was sick with experience. He began to die. One day, a fool wandered into the castle and found the king alone. Now, being a fool, he was simple-minded. He didn't see a king. He only saw a man alone and in pain. And he asked the king, What ails you, friend? The king replied, I'm thirsty. I need some water to cool my throat. So the fool took a cup from beside his bed, filled it with water, and handed it to the king. And as the king began to drink, he realized his wound was healed. He looked in his hands, and there was the Holy Grail, that which he sought all of his life. He turned to the fool and said with amazement, How could you find that which my brightest and bravest could not? The fool replied, I don't know. I only knew that you were thirsty. It's very beautiful, isn't it? But it's also a bit of a glass cannon and not what most of us experience. Most of us fail the adventure of the first Grail Castle. Most of us have had our dreams dashed, faced disappointment or disillusionment, or our hopes deferred. Most societal issues are not going to be fixed with just naive faces and fresh takes. And so we need a myth for the mature, the experienced, the enduring and resilient, the people who understand deep down into their bones the meaning of never-ending battle. This is part of the reason that almost every theme or motif appears repeatedly in the story. Percival's faith is rekindled by the pilgrims and then the hermit. Percival faces temptation with the devil but then again at the wedding. Percival unwittingly fights his brother-in-arms Gawain and then his half-brother Firefizz. 
This is because, as we've said before, this is our experience of experience, of learning. We need repetition and learn the same lessons again and again until they're ours. That's not a sign of evil or wrongdoing, but human nature, showing how our good intentions can be co-opted by violence, perspective, or misunderstanding. It was right to want to defeat Gramophlans, but wrong to fight a brother over it. It was right to protect the wedding, but wrong to fight a brother over it. Intentions matter, but so do consequences. Imagine if Percival had killed the knight with the wreath and slain Gawain on his wedding day. Imagine if Percival had defeated Firefizz and killed his own brother. One of the hardest lessons to learn is that this man is not my enemy. We get a hint of this in Man of Steel, but it's practically the spine of BVS. Remember the lesson of the fundamental attribution error. The goal isn't to categorize others as fundamentally good or fundamentally evil, but as people. When you encounter them, you may differ in the moment, but that difference may simply be a matter of circumstance, context, or a degree of consciousness. Things are not always as they appear, or always will be. Remember that when Percival blundered through the lives of those weeping damsels, to himself he was the hero. But to them, he may as well have been the supervillain in their lives and in their eyes. When Percival comes across Gawain and Firefizz, they are to him villains in the guise of Gramoflans or of an enemy people only to turn out to be his brothers in arms and in blood. Indeed, the first and only killing Percival commits is against the Red Knight, who is also blood, and the hideous damsel turns out to be the Grail Maiden. The one who humiliated him was the one who turned him from the way of worldly pursuits onto the path of the spiritual journey, where he finds enlightenment, his family, his community, and she becomes his beautiful and beloved sister-in-law. Our perspective and capacity to judge others at any given moment is limited by our own experience at the time and how much we give over to that. Even God himself became something to be hated, despised, and cursed with contempt based on Percival's bitterness at the time. In the medieval Christian context, God is by definition an absolute good, and perhaps the only immutable measuring stick. But the story has the wisdom to show that even the first Grail Knight, our ideal and mortal model, can be put into a place where he curses a good thing and can't see its goodness. The rage, the powerlessness, that turns good men cruel. And yet, in time, the lesson is that we can come to a place where our best selves are revealed and we can see it in others as well, where we stop branding forever, but rebuild together. Man made a world where it's impossible to stand together. No, men are still good. Percival became embroiled in fights because he framed his brothers as enemies and came at them lance lowered. And we can learn that lesson. Don't start with a frame of enemy. Don't open with a lance lowered. Start by seeing if you may be brothers, fellow knights of the round, fathers or mothers who share the same name. See and share the values you have in common. We got lucky with Superman who shared our values. What's important here is that we have another instance of the Cain and Abel motif. Parzival comes to meet his brother, almost kills him, but establishes peace with him. What's at stake here is that Wolfram imagines a world in which Christians and Muslims, who are brothers, will come to establish peaceful relationships with each other. This is Wolfram's major theme. He wants to connect Europe with Asia, Christianity with Muslim culture. Ask the spontaneous question from a noble heart that will heal. We spend too much time talking about each other, at each other, past each other, and not enough time talking with each other. That is respect, okay? Sitting down and talking, not necessarily agreeing, but respecting each other to air their points of view. I am a musician, not a psychologist or sociologist. If I can do that, anybody in here can do that. Take the time to sit down 
and talk with your adversaries. You will learn something and they will learn something from you. Keep in mind, when two enemies are talking, they're not fighting, they're talking. They might be yelling and screaming, but at least they're talking. It's when the talking ceases that the ground becomes fertile for violence. So keep the conversation going. Actually, we're too skeptical. So there's a very famous psychologist called Julian Rotter, but he said that the more trustful you are, the more successful you are in life, and the better you are at determining if someone is trustworthy or if something's worth supporting because you've practiced it. So people who are more trusting generally, they practice it through life. And then you learn who to trust and who not to trust. Whereas the cynics who just think, oh God, everyone's a liar, everyone's trying to dupe me, they actually have no idea and they lose out because of that. People committed to that dialogue often have cause to wonder or doubt whether it's worth it. And this is part of the reason why Percival's journey is in a sense predestined. If in anything the core of it, it is about compassion. And it's in that sense, it uses that Christian myth of the Fisher King, which is about the nature of compassion and what is it. And it is not out looking all over the place when it's, you know, it is right there in front of you and dealing with the simplest pains. To see someone, it's like the last line of the thing, I, I didn't see a king, I only saw a man who was thirsty. It was that. It's that simple. And it kind of has to be a fool who does it. And it seems, it's not, and it almost sounds Buddhist in the way it is. You know, it's like something that's so simple, but yet so lost in most people. And it's about four people trying to get their lives together and, and through connection with other people. And in the end, that's all you have, you know. There's this incredible loneliness that you can experience. It can be a fool with a beginner's mind, he who does this for the least of these, but it can also be one's own inner fool. The myth is telling us that it is the naive part of a man that will heal him and cure his Fisher King wound. It suggests that if a man is to be cured, he must find something in himself about the same age and about the same mentality as he was when he was wounded. It also tells us why the Fisher King cannot heal himself and why, when he goes fishing, his pain is eased, though not cured. For a man to be truly healed, he must allow something entirely different from himself to enter into his consciousness and change him. He cannot be healed if he remains in the old Fisher King mentality. That is why the young fool part of himself must enter his life if he is to be cured. This is humbling medicine to accept. A man must consent to look to a foolish, innocent, adolescent part of himself for his cure. The inner fool is the only one who can touch his Fisher King wound. Fatherless at a young age, Percival's bloodline ties him to the Grail King, which is a way of saying the Grail was with you the entire time. And our Superman story mirrors that, with the Codex inside of Cal, Jonathan's memory inside of Clark, and the powers yet untapped inside of Superman. We have a great reservoir of good within us to tap into, that part of us that's still teachable, still hopes and dreams, still feels awe and wonder, the part that delights in stories and superheroes, which is part of the reason I put so much effort into all of this, because as the man once said, powerful art can heal, bring awareness, and create change. My art is a weapon! One last example, earlier I mentioned Prester John, the son of Fire Fizz and the Grail Maiden. The two of them have a very interesting story that's told at some length. They return to India, where they establish a Christian kingdom there. Their son becomes the legendary Prester John. A Prester John is a very frequently told story in the Middle Ages. Prester John is supposedly a Christian king who ruled a Christian kingdom, various located in either the Middle East or the Far East. It's uh, variously placed in India or China or 
even in Ethiopia. While Campbell credits Percival with European individualism and exploration, the legend of Prester John has had actual historical impact on 400 years of history. Explorers ventured to the Far East and around Africa, seeking the mythical kingdom, and in turn, meeting and learning from different peoples and cultures. In 1165, copies of a strange letter began to circulate throughout Western Europe. It spoke of a fantastical realm containing the Tower of Babel and the Fountain of Youth, all ruled over by the letter's mysterious author, Prester John. Today, we know that this extraordinary king never existed, but the legend of this mythical kingdom and its powerful ruler would impact the decisions of European leaders for the next 400 years. Prester John's myth would propel the age of exploration, inspire intercontinental diplomacy, and indirectly begin a civil war. Before long, European mapmakers were guessing the location of his mythical kingdom. In the 13th and 14th centuries, European missionaries went east along the newly revived Silk Road. Europeans began pursuing alternate routes to the Far East and new clues to Prester John's location. At the same time these explorers went south, Ethiopian pilgrims began traveling north. Since Ethiopia had been converted to Christianity in the 4th century, the stories of their African homeland fit perfectly into Prester John's legend. Over the next two centuries, the legend of Prester John slowly faded into oblivion, ending the reign of a king who made history despite having never existed. But it is supposed to be accepted as a kind of symbol. The grail always represents some ideal, and here it really does represent the concept of an ideal world community, a world utopia in which anyone can join. Wolfram begins a tradition which attaches the grail to the East and to Asia, and we'll see that this becomes a clue that successive grail romancers will tell. As Percival decodes symbols and signs, you can learn to decode stories and your own life. So we are creatures of narrative. The trick that we have learnt, in fact more than learnt, which is hardwired into our brains, is to look for a story that explains our situation, whatever that situation might be, which tells us where we stand, how we got there, where we're trying to get to, and how we're going to get to that place. And it's not just stories in general that we are attuned to, but particular narrative structures. There are a number of basic plots that we use again and again. There is one basic plot which turns out to be tremendously powerful, and I call this The restoration story, it goes as follows. Disorder afflicts the land, caused by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But the hero will revolt against this disorder, fight those powerful forces against the odds, overthrow them, and restore harmony to the land. You've heard this story before. It's the Bible story. It's the Harry Potter story. It's the Lord of the Rings story. But it's also the story that has accompanied almost every political and religious transformation going back millennia. In fact, we could go as far as to say that without a powerful new restoration story, a political and religious transformation might not be able to happen. It's that important. 
where I thought to find an abomination, I found a God, where I thought to slay another, I slay myself, where I thought to travel outward, I travel to the center of my own existence, and where I thought to be alone, I shall be with all the world, which encapsulates the hero's journey. And for me, it's like one of the great quotes that I've carried to my life, and I, I find really inspiring, even just when you talk about the cycle of normal people, like this sort of quest for some sort of spiritual enlightenment, and then how it manifests itself in your daily life. It's a pretty cool way to think about the world. And I think it mirrors some of the things that happen, certainly in Superman's journey. The Grail Quest contains countless lessons that still have purchase today. The Brotherhood of Mankind, the decoding of symbols and signs, asking questions, independence, and chasing the ideal, wounds and healing, faith and doubt, perseverance, resilience, and hope for the impossible against trying times. Percival is a story that has had an impact on creativity, psychology, culture, and history. The way it has served as an inspiration for all these things and the films that we love so much. Hopefully, it will serve as an inspiration to you too. Don't give up, my friend. You're the answer, son.
You're the answer, son.